BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Who is that election between again? J.B. Pritzker. Darren Bailey! J.B. Pritzker. Darren Bailey! J.B. Pritzker. Darren Bailey! J.B. Pritzker. Darren Bailey! Hey, everybody. Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Wednesday, <laughs> September 14th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke every now and again. And so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Ben, I saw the latest column from you online today. It's all about the Queen. Yes. Hello, mate. The Queen. <laughs> I, had fun. I just was re- If you listened to me last week, I uh, I took an extended riff on uh, Chicago. I'm going to talk about it with Romana. We're going to have a lot of fun with Romana when we do the bonus. Uh, the second city mentality, Chicagoans, they have to like find their importance by linking themselves to celebrities. D. So the Queen of England was here once 63 years ago for 14 hours, got out, never came back. And Chicago was like, she really likes us. It's her kind of town. Come on, Chicago. You're better than that. Come on, Chicago. Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Wednesday, September 14th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this hellhole city Wednesday, and here's why. Because DB, Mr. Hellhole himself, has moved to Chicago. And, you know, so many people sent me this link, D, when the story broke yesterday. I think Atinas Fondelis from The Bright One broke it. Shout out to Tina. She's on a roll, a rock and roll, not cinnamon roll, not cinnamon rock and roll. Hey, before you go further, I just got to say something uh, crazy to crazy to believe. It's been a year to this day, the death of Norm Macdonald. No way. Yeah, I I I can't even get the words out. You caught me off guard with that one. That was not part of our pre-show planning, which I I, I recall was one minute about electric bikes, (laughs) which I'll get to. I did not. Man, damn! Wow. Time flies. Right. Um, I was just watching one of his bits uh, on uh, YouTube. Where else? YouTube the other day. Anyway, uh, shout out. You caught me off guard with that one, D, but I will now uh, regain my footing and <laughs> throw a pass. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, it's okay. It's, it's all good. Uh, I kind of got a little sad when you said it. You know what I mean? That's what kind of got me off guard. I'm really sad a lot of these days. Like, when you get older, it happens to you. It's going to happen to you, ladies and gentlemen. Ramsey Lewis died. We're going to be talking about Ramsey Lewis with Aaron Cohen. He's coming on the show. He, I was co-writing uh, 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 with Ramsey, uh, Ramsey's autobiography. Uh, and so we're going to give a little shout out. But yeah, the older you get, more people die, the more it hits you. Uh, and so when Dee just said that to me about Norm McDonald, I was like, whoa, it just caught me in mid-sentence there. Uh, so I had to pause and regain myself. And I 
kind of done that. Uh, Monroe Anderson will be here as well, so don't worry. This will be a Monroe Wednesday. We'll be talking Trump and politics. But Monroe is going to broaden, talk about Ramsey Lewis, because when you're our age, like me and Monroe, uh, Ramsey Lewis meant a lot to us. Anyway, all right. Uh, home Sweet Hellhole is the he- title my beloved bright one home delivered. I don't know. I'll show it oh, to Dennis. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Too. Let's see. Do I have a Tribune headline? Hold on. Let's see if we can do a play the game. I don't even know if the Tribune covered this story. Come on, Tribune. Uh, no, the Tribune did it. Tribune did not cover it. Wait a minute. Is, uh, I don't think the Tribune. Oh, oh wow. Tribune. Oh, I think mm-hmm. I know who they're supporting. Uh, Tribune. Uh, they did not even cover home sweet hellhole. Uh, and again, uh, shout out to Tina because what Tina did in this column and uh, Tina's a lot younger than I am. Uh, of course that doesn't mean much these days. Everybody's younger than me, but, uh, so she went back in time and I always think I'm always appreciate when younger journalists can do this. Cause as I like to tease millennials, millennials don't think anything happened before they were born. Uh, and the Z's are kind of, you got that going too, Z's. Don't don't think I'm sleeping on you. Uh, and so it's always good when somebody who is like a millennial can look back to something that happened before they were born. You know how many times millennials say, "Well, I'll say I'll mention some historical fact," and I go, "Well, Ben, I I wasn't even born yet." Like, well, so <laughs> I mean, so we're not allowed to talk about the Civil War because we weren't born yet. <laughs> Come on, millennials. Uh, you know, I love you, but that is a weird thing of yours. Uh, anyway, so, uh, but what, what Tina did, which was really cool, I thought, was she compared what Dara Bailey did uh, in moving into the John Hancock building, which is an upscale skyscraper on the Gold Coast, to what uh, Mayor Jane Byrne did way, way, way back. And I go way, way, way back to 1980. 1980. Casey Kasem here with the countdown. Number one, Michael Jackson off the wall. Living off the wall. Uh, anyway, uh, so she went way, way back to 1980. Great year, by the way. Michael Jackson was uh, king of pop back then. And uh, Mayor Jane Byrne moved into Cabrini Green, which no longer exists. It's a public housing complex on the north side of Chicago. was uh, for you youngsters, go watch Candyman. Uh, you know, I think that's about the only remnant of Cabrini Green in popular culture anymore. The uh, Candyman, uh, the movie, the latest movie version of Candyman. But anyway, she compared it to Jane Byrne doing it. Like Jane Byrne did that uh, to draw attention. Well, probably did as a publicity stunt, but uh, the ostensible reason, the the public policy reason was to draw attention to uh, the crime uh, that was going on at Cabrini Green and the fact that it was uh, was a really scary, frightening place to live in when people started shooting at each other. And so she was like, her presence at Cabrini Green would draw attention uh, to the needs of people in Cabrini Green, bring more police resources, more city resources to Cabrini Green. She only stayed there for like two weeks and she moved on and uh, well, the rest is history with Jane Byrne. Uh, but um, so the idea that Darren Bailey would uh, like draw attention to the city of Chicago by moving to the Hancock building, like he's trying to understand the city of Chicago. Like, I'm going to try to relate to you people in Chicago after I've called you a hellhole. Uh, he's still calling us a hellhole. Uh, so he's going to move in to uh, the John Hancock building. I just... I don't know what to say. I mean, it's kind of a funny stunt, uh, but it's interesting contrast because it was just about a month ago, I want to say, that Tina Svondelis wrote another great story about folks in Centralia saying that they feel ignored uh, and uh, overlooked. 
uh, and condescended to by people in Chicago. And the time had come to elect somebody from downstate who understood them. So now you have some downstate guy running, supposedly representing the people of Centralia or MAGA people in Centralia. Uh, and what's he doing? He's moving to Chicago. I think he just moved to Chicago because I don't know, probably more convenient for a campaign stop, but he's trying to put a positive spin on it. Anyway, DB, Darren Bailey coming down. Sweet home hellhole. Home sweet hellhole. That's the headline uh, in the bright one. Here's something, Darren Bailey, you might want to consider taking up if you're moving to Chicago. Electric biking. If you want to be a Chicago and at least like a, you, you obviously you're a gold coaster. So it's downtown Chicago. You got to get into electric biking. I bet he already has one <laughs> for real. I'd, for real. It's, it's big downstate too. I, is it? Yeah. You kept that from me. <laughs> you kept that from me. Ladies well, and gentlemen, what do you think downstate uh, is like another country or something? No, you kept from me that it was big downstate. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's uh, like uh, older people, you know, they love it. Older people. Uh, you know what? Okay, so this brings me where I'm at right now. So uh, I'm a little, give a little uh, break the fourth wall, D. Sorry about this. So D mentioned to me the other day that he was thinking of getting an electric bike. B- big bike rider, uh, Dennis. Goes like right up to the Wisconsin border. I'm not making this up. He'll go take a long bike ride uh, from, he lives in Pilsen on the near south side, all the way. Well, I don't think you've gone to Wisconsin lately, but you've gone like to um, the Botanical Gardens, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, in Glencoe or Glenview, wherever it is. Anyway, uh, so I think it's Glencoe, neither here nor there. Uh, so he mentioned to me yesterday, Dennis, that he's going to get an electric bike. And I hadn't thought about electric bikes. I've seen them, of course, but I hadn't thought much about them. Last night I went for a late night walk. Late night, but it was dark. I'm walking through the, it's dark. And with, with electric bikes, they glow around the um, chain. So, all of a sudden, because they're glowing, it's like fireflies. I could see them more clearly. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of these mother beeps around here. So I uh, you like how I beat it out, Dean, just in yeah. case this is a lumpen. Uh, and so um, I immediately texted Dennis, <laughs> which is, oh, my God, there's a lot of electric bikes. So, uh, Darren Bailey, if you want to be a real Chicago hipster, you got to get yourself an electric bike. All right. Uh Roam around uh, the Gold Coast and like Darren Bailey and an electric bike. What a concept! What a thought. Anyway, uh, Darren Bailey trying to uh, diffuse the notion that he has something against Chicago by moving to Chicago. Uh, Neil Steinberg wrote a very funny column about what he's like welcoming. This is what you should do when you come to Chicago, Darren Bailey. And then he talks about uh, taking him around and the, showing him the sights, uh, et cetera, and so forth. But uh, yeah, it's. I don't know. I'm not certain it's a tactic that's going to work to bring in votes. I'm not quite sure why he's doing it. Like I said, it just seems probably a convenience thing. It needs to be closer to Chicago because he's making a lot of stops in the Chicago area. Uh, I can't imagine one voter flipping to Darren Bailey from J.B. Pritzker or from Undecided to Darren Bailey because he's moved to the Hancock building in order to understand Chicago more. So, you know, I just, I stretch. I think anybody who uh, likes this and says, I'm voting for Darren Bailey was probably going to vote for Darren Bailey anyway. Oh, I guess probably going to vote for DB anyway. I see a new door dasher coming soon. He's going to love it. <laughs> Man, he can order all this stuff. Man. <laughs> Don't they have DoorDash downstate? Yeah, but downstate no, DoorDash. I mean, like you're getting like McDonald's or something, you know, nothing, you know. Like the Chicago food, you know what I mean? Man. 
so uh, anyway, uh, congratulations, dear Bailey. You moved to the Gold Coast. Uh, when the election's over, I'm sure you'll move out. I doubt Darren Bailey is going to settle in Chicago anytime soon, D. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't think it's his kind of town. It's it maybe the Queen's kind of town, as the Sun Times said, but I don't think it's Darren Bailey. Monroe Anderson has joined us. It's a Wednesday. Legendary journalist Monroe Anderson has joined us. Uh, he's ready to talk Trump. He's ready to talk uh, all kinds of national politics. And then we're going to bring on AC Aaron Cohen, a little tribute to Ramsey Lewis. And we'll talk Ramsey Lewis, Monroe, uh, of my generation. We're roughly the same age. Uh, we're both Ramsey Lewis fans. So great Chicago and Ramsey Lewis. Uh, we'll talk about him. But Monroe, I got to ask you, now, I know this is a total curveball. I know you're not a huge uh, basketball fan. Oh. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, th- th- uh, but you are, you have experienced what it's like to be a black man uh, in white corporate America. All right. So yes. uh, that's my lead in uh, okay. to the story that broke yesterday. Oh, the Phoenix uh, Suns. Yes. I, he does. You know what? I told you, I knew he would know this one, even though it's not basketball because this one here is so outrageous in my humble opinion, but more, I don't want to prejudice you with my belief. I want to get your unadulterated views on this situation. So let me just do a little background for it. Cause some of our listeners are probably not sports fans in any way. Uh, even though this is not technically a sports story. All right. So uh, there's a gentleman named Robert Sarver. He's a multi-millionaire, billionaire uh, developer, owns the Phoenix Suns uh, basketball team, NBA basketball team. So uh, just so you know this, ladies and gentlemen, most of you probably know this already, but just in case to help you a little bit, the NBA uh, Players Association, the players in the NBA, overwhelmingly black men. Overwhelmingly black. I think it's like 75%. Yeah. The owners of the NBA, the the people who actually own the teams and make the money from the teams, and uh, as Willie Wilson would say it, sign the front of a paycheck as opposed to signing the back of a paycheck, are overwhelmingly white men, with one exception, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Uh, well, actually, in terms of that's the one black American owner. There's uh, Chinese American owners, et cetera, and so forth. But anyway, uh, neither here nor there. Uh, so... Uh, Robert Sarver uh, is a white man who owns uh, the Phoenix Suns basketball team. uh, And the NBA has suspended Suns owner Sarver for one year. I'm reading from the Washington Post and fined him $10 million after an expansive independent investigation into the organization's workplace culture concluded that he had used racial epithets and treated female employees by a different standard than their male counterparts. Man, that is just the most euphemistic uh (laughs) description of what he did. He frequently uh used uh the N-word. At two in front of black people, uh, and then when some uh, employee, a black man, er, uh, Earl Watson, who was the coach, pointed out that perhaps that was that no, forget perhaps that was offensive. He shouldn't use it. He insisted it's okay for him to use it because black people use it. So I'm like, I, I don't know where this guy's getting his uh, tips on how do you deal with a uh, integrated workplace, Monroe Anderson. But that is an interesting. Oh, I heard it on a rap song, so it must be okay. Uh, and uh, so there's a, a wide evidence of all kinds of abuse, grotesque behavior by Sarver. 
and uh, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, stopped short of issuing a lifetime ban to Sarber, a punishment that he doled out to former L.A. Clipper owner Donald Sterling, who was caught on tape making racist comments uh, in 2014. In a statement, Silver, who's the commissioner, said that the investigation's findings were, quote, troubling and disappointing, and that Sarber's punishment was the right one, taking into account all the facts, circumstances, and context throughout his ownership tenure. Uh, he chalked up Sarver's belief uh, behavior to his quote, sophomoric and inappropriate sense of humor and his lack of a filter. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton with a different point of view thinks that uh, uh, Sarver should uh, be stripped of his ownership of the sons for what he did. We now turn to Monroe Anderson, judge Monroe Anderson. All right, Monroe, do you think it was a slap on the wrist or do you think that critics like me are guilty of, being cancel culturists go i think that he should have been um denied ownership and that a black woman should have been been sold the uh team (laughs) the problem is these guys and and this is this is trumpish we're in the Trump era now, but these these rich guys um, can leave the quiet room and just be out there saying what they want because they, they feel empowered. You know, they they're billionaires. They got all the money. Um, they got all these people working for them who dare not. Um, offer an ultimate uh, an alternate discipline to these guys i mean if 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 he were the team um janitor and did that somebody would have smacked him in the mouth and he wouldn't have done it anymore he wouldn't have said it anymore uh but because he's the boss then he figures he can he has license to, to say whatever he wants whenever he wants and this is how white supremacy continues to reign. Uh, I, your uh, analogy to a janitor is uh, well done. I'll go one step further. The janitor, yes, he might have been uh, punched in the face uh, if it turned to a fight, if he said it directly to a black guy. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, if it had gone through the regular scheme, you know, like you report it to the boss and HR, the janitor would have been fired. Right. And, yeah. And that utter hypocrisy. I mean, the janitor gets fired, but uh, old boy Sarber gets a slap on the wrist because everybody's going, Ben, it's $10 million. Figure it out, ladies and gentlemen. I think he's worth like 2 to $3 billion, something like that. Just do the math in your head what uh, $10 million is out of someone's uh, – <laughs> If you're worth three billion or what have you, so and uh, one year suspension. So Monroe, uh, as our show's resident expert on uh, bad white people behavior, um, and uh, you, you know, we turn to you studying them for half a century. (laughs) (laughs) Having actually worked at the Chicago Tribune, I don't know how you ever did that. I don't know how I could have survived the Chicago Tribune. Uh, So you worked at the Chicago Tribune, so you were exposed uh, to people like Robert Sarver uh, in high places all the time. 
So explain to me, why is it uh, that a guy like Robert Sarver thinks it's okay uh, to use the N-word because he heard a rap singer say it or because he heard uh, a black man who was in the NBA say it? Why does he think that he gets to say it then? Help me out there, Monroe. White privilege, white privilege, very, and, and arrogance. You know, for example, when I was at Channel 2, I had a general manager. At the time, I was um, on the board of the National Association of Black Journalists. And he quips, um, well, I wonder why there isn't an organization for white journalists. And um, I responded to him. Every every now and then, I, I would drop my guard and tell the truth to these folks. I, I said, there is, it's called the um, NDA or something, what, whatever, there was this organization, it was the, the uh, it was the National Association of um, Editors or something for, for television. I, I forget that it's been a while since I've been in TV. But anyway, it was, um, almost 100% white because of discrimination. And so that was my my response to him. And at the time, Jonathan Rogers was still um, working at uh, CBS, and he was this general manager's boss. And Jonathan and and I were friends. So... um, he he had to just think about what I said. And said whereas had had I not had someone above me to to, uh, to watch out for me, I may have been the one who was fired yeah. for being uppy. Well, uh, this is something that I've encountered uh, for a long time now, and I kick it back to the seventies when I first began encountering and I was trying to figure stuff out very young and impressionable, naive, just trying to struggling to figure the world out. So there was a gentleman named Baki, uh, who was denied entrance to some medical school that he wanted to get into. Uh, and he filed a law lawsuit, a reverse discrimination lawsuit, right. uh, stipulating that, uh, uh, black applicants had gotten in, whose test scores weren't as good as his. So he was the victim of discrimination. Uh, And that's when I began to notice the rhetoric around me all the time that white people felt compelled to establish themselves as victims. Right. And I'm like, wow, I'm trying to figure it out, Monroe, because I'm looking at the history books. I don't see it. (laughs) You know what I'm, I'm just trying to understand it. Like this sense of need of victimhood. And I, we, we talk Trump all the time. MAGA is very much rooted in the argument that white people are victims. Right. Right. And it's like this giant grievance and they're picking on us. And I get emails all the time. And then the only black people they ever come to defense of are people like Herschel Walker. Right. Uh, you, you know, well, they're getting picked on or Tim Scott loves doing this. Uh, like whenever he gets an email and someone calling him uncle Tom, he goes, guess what? They called me an uncle Tom. Uh, uh, picked on for standing up for you. And uh, you remember Richard Irvin's campaign here in Illinois? Yeah. Uh, they, you know, I'm their worst fear. A man who looks like me and thinks like us. Like, what? Right. 
and by the way, finished third. So much for the us part right. of that. Right. Uh, <laughs> so we let him down. <laughs> oh Lord, white people let Urban down. Um, so Monroe, help me out here. I need to. I need help. Like. Why is it just because white people are envious of black people that they, they I want to be a victim too? Why does everybody want to be a victim? Look, this this is a problem. White people get to stand at the front of the line, and black people either have to go to the end of the line or sometimes aren't even allowed in the line. And in some instances now, uh, blacks are being allowed at the, at, at the front of the line. And because white people think that's their spot, that they're being replaced, they're very upset about it. Well, I, uh, I do know that, I, in my personal opinion, uh, he should lose control of the team. That's just me. I don't. Th- I don't see a distinction between what he did and what uh, Donald Sterling, who was an abomination on the Clippers a few right. years ago. But I know you don't follow this stuff because you're not in the NBA. And then uh, Earl Watson, who was the coach. I, I, I follow racism. Okay. Coast <laughs> morning, noon, and night. <laughs> uh, so. And then now Earl Watson has a chance to say, I was right. I was the coach uh, who spoke out about it originally, a black man. And. Uh, so I just think the NBA, if you're, if well, it's you're, the same, it's the same with the, the NFL. Um, it's 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 the same with um, Major League Baseball, ex- except there you don't have the predominance of black players, men. Wait, in baseball, but the NFL in you do, but not baseball. Right, that's what I mean. Baseball, yeah, doesn't have it. yeah. 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 And so um, it's, it's it actually it's Hispanics that they're, they're screwing around. But, this, you know, in, in 2007, I went to South Africa. And as you know, um, there once was apartheid there. And that was 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 gone. was gotten rid of. And so blacks are now running the country. But guess who still owns the country? Well. Yeah, and that hasn't changed, and it, yeah, and so it's 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 um he he who has the goal determines the goal. Yeah, uh, let's see uh, the golden rule. Uh, uh, <laughs> he who owns the gold makes the rules. All right, uh, Aaron Cohen has joined us. Before we bring him on officially to talk, uh, Ramsey Lewis, but uh, Aaron, should feel free to jump in on any conversation politically. Monroe, I just got to do. Oh, just uh, to say, I agree with both you guys. Oh, on that, on the uh, on everything. Uh, Okay. <laughs> okay, that's good enough. Uh, although, I, what happens if we disagree? Uh-oh, then he's in trouble. Uh, Monroe and I have been known. I, in fact, I will now give an example. Uh, I'm now, I have a couple of news items that I want to run by Monroe. Uh, and uh, so this is one we, um, well, I, mean, I don't know if we disagree on this one, but uh, it's one where we're not in a whole 100% agreement. So there was a story uh, that came out in the Washington Post today. Uh, which I sent to Monroe, but I have a feeling he didn't read. Uh, and um, it has to do with a study, Monroe, 
uh, and Aaron uh, from some think tank that whose uh, uh, bean counters in the back rooms analyzed, follow me on this, primary results over the last year for the Democratic and Republican Party. Uh, and what they determine is that by and large, Democrats of the Ben ilk, which means Bernie lefties, are losing to Democrats of the centrist ilk, and this this is where Monroe, where I always put Monroe, and he gets irritated, uh, who have been the Biden ilk have been dominating in Democratic primaries, uh, Monroe, and uh, whereas in the Republican side of things, the extreme MAGA has taken over, and they're winning pretty much every single primary. So, did you follow that one, uh, Monroe and Aaron? On the Democratic side, the Bens are losing. And the Bidens are winning. I won't say the Monroes are winning. I'll say the Bidens are winning. Uh, and the Republican side, the I'm trying to think, Charles Percy's, <laughs> got to go back a long way to find a real moderate, have been annihilated and MAGA is winning. Monroe, what do you, uh, what's your thoughts about this survey? It's pretty, it looks pretty uh, tight. I was going through it, the, their, uh, the, the examples they use, et cetera. What do you think it says about where we're at politically uh, in the country right now, Monroe? Um, we're back to the 1850s. <laughs> and uh, and the, 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 main, the main difference is back then, the Republicans were yeah. Democrats. They, they were the... The, the radicals who were in, in favor of maintaining slavery, what have you. I mean, that, that's a, and that's the mentality. Obviously, nobody has gotten around yet to, um, at least publicly, say, "Well, we ought to we ought to uh, reinstate slavery." But white supremacy. Reigns. Maybe I. Maybe I should. I'm not being fair. Maybe it's the 1920s. At that time, the Ku Klu Klux Klan had um, people in government from coast to coast, in, in, in state government, and 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 New New York had um, people who were in office who were members of the Klan back then. Yeah. And 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 it, last week I don't know if you noticed this, but last week there was a report um, that came out listing all the members of um, law enforcement that were yeah. in the January sixth insurrection participated. It was it was um, I think more than a hundred. Yeah, it, uh, and then uh, including so a police officer from Chicago. Uh, so and, yeah, I, and as far wait, okay, no, let's go. Okay, but let's do the other part of your uh, yeah, the Ben part of it. The, yeah, go the, ahead. The 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 um, super progressive Dems have been elected to office in in various places. For example, um, in, in New York, um, AOC, huh? AOC, yeah, AOC. But no, no, no. I'm talking talking about um, further north. We're at Buffalo in Buffalo. Oh, we're the mayor of uh, Buffalo, a socialist. You're talking yes. about? 
Exactly. Yeah, that she lost uh, in the uh, in a, to a writing candidate put up by corporate Buffalo. So she's not the mayor. She lost. She won in the Democratic primary. And then they put up corporate Buffalo, put up a writing. Ca- I'm not making this up. A writing oh, candidate. I, I miss that. OK. Yeah. So proving the point uh, that uh, there is sort of a counter uh, and the Democratic Party does not want to embrace uh, people, my political ilk. It's I'm pretty. I get that message. Okay, I got that message loud and clear. It won't stop yeah. me from pushing because I do believe Monroe. If if it's not for the Bernies of the world, the Bidens of the world wouldn't be doing what they're doing. So it oh, yeah, takes no. one to get the other. It, uh, it, 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 that's true. Um, Malcolm X made Martin Luther King look moderate. Yes. Although King was not a moderate. He had a different approach, but uh, he was a radical also. Had there not been a Martin, I mean, a a Malcolm X, and Martin would have been a radical all by himself. Well, okay, now we'll go to uh, that pathway, but um, uh, Martin Luther King, ladies and gentlemen, was Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders. Let's just call it for what it is. Right. Every exactly. single leftist initiative that Bernie Sanders has proclaimed is essential. Martin Luther King was proclaiming was essential back in 1966 and 67. Probably why they killed him, Monroe. Uh, yeah. You know, they, 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 that has been been argued. Uh, so, uh, all right, let's bring in Aaron Cohen. I. Um, yeah, we had Aaron, you were on the show, I think it was like two weeks ago, we did a, a show where you were talking, it was, it was a happy moment, we were talking about the fact uh, uh, that you were coming uh, to the end of a memoir that you were writing uh, with the great Ramsey Lewis, the great uh, jazz piano man uh, from uh, Chicago. Uh, born in Cabrini Green, grew up in Cabrini Green, went to uh, Jenner Elementary, I want to say, went to Wells High School, uh, settled in Hyde Park. So he's really a Chicagoan. Uh, it's not like Queen Elizabeth type of Chicagoan, came for 14 hours and left. I mean, a real Chicagoan. Uh, he died a couple of days ago at age uh, 87. And uh, I, I just, you know, comparing deaths, I was... When Joey DeFrancesco died at age 51, it was it was it hurt more because, you know, he was younger and he had so much more years to go creatively. Uh, Ramsey lived a long time, 87. So I can't feel bad on that. And but I'm I don't know, Aaron, I've been feeling uh, really nostalgic uh, ever since because Ramsey Lewis has been part of my life one way or another. Monroe and I were talking about he's the same way. We're the same generation Uh, from in crowd when I was a kid uh, in grammar school all the way through high school, all the way through the seventies when he collaborated with earth, wind and fire, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so I wanted to bring you back just to talk uh, about Ramsey's legacy and also just talk about in terms of like, what's the future of your project, your memoir, uh, is that still full speed ahead and just your general thoughts. So uh, why don't we start with, um, well, your, uh, the legacy of Ramsey Lewis. We'll start there. Go ahead, Eric. Well, let me start out by saying, you know, I'm, still very, very saddened uh, about his, his passing, about his death, um, along with his great music, along with, um, you know, the great life that he led and the great, uh, I'm sorry if I'm a bit um, s- sad right now and speaking about him, but 
along with the great music, the great art he created, his dedication to the city of Chicago, where he did live his entire life, and uh, the great love he had uh, for his family, um, he and I became friends in working on this project together. And I, I miss... I miss him. I miss, you know, he was always saying very funny things. He has this great sharp wit that I, I really miss. And it was just such a blessing to be able to spend time with him. We would work uh, at first in person. I would go to his, his Streeterville place and we would uh, do the interviews in person. And then we did the interviews over Zoom. And, you know, as I mentioned in the uh, piece I wrote for the Tribune, it was such a joy to play him videos of himself from the 60s and 70s and 80s that he had not seen for a while and to just see the joy on his face and to get his uh, reactions to those and to the recordings from that time. And I really miss um, being able to do that on a, on a regular basis along with, so I very much miss his presence in, in my life um, and what he created was so singular for a jazz pianist to have created in terms of his music, in terms of his approach, in terms of his very unique background and what he brought to jazz representing that background and becoming so incredibly uh, successful at that. So I, he's, he left us a few days ago and I, I miss him very much uh, already. When you say his unique approach, uh, elaborate a little bit on that, Aaron. Like, sure. what makes him uh, singular, you know, and unique? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, Ben, um, Ramsey grew up in Cabrini Green. He grew up uh, playing piano in his father's church, uh, AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And at the same time, he had a childhood love for classical music and learning and studying classical music, learning his Bach. He was very much into Rachmaninoff and other, other composers. And so he came to jazz as a teenager after already having this extensive experience playing in the AME church every week, extensive experiences studying classical piano uh, with teachers like Dorothy Mendelssohn, appearing in these young classical musician, um, you know, competitions. So he brought this gospel and classical experience very deep on both ends to jazz. Uh, when he started, when he was, uh, invited to join a jazz group called the clefts that became the Ramsey Lewis trio. So having this background and then everything he did after that, all of the music, all of the jazz that he did, and he did so many different kinds of jazz too, which we will talk about, was still rooted in those early experiences in both gospel and classical. And I can't think of another jazz pianist who had that kind of experience coming up. Well, I can think of one. Uh, and he's also from Chicago, and he's also one of the greats, Herbie Hancock. Uh, well, Herbie Hick studied uh, classical music. Go ahead. But Herbie Hancock did not have that experience in the church to the extent that Ramsey Lewis had. And that made a big difference in their sounds. Okay, Aaron, let me disagree with you a little bit. Okay. Okay. Sure. I grew up in the AME church. Okay. First AME and Gary. Um, my wife grew up in the AME church in Philadelphia. And in fact, that's where the, the AME church uh through Alan, I forget his first name now, but anyway, Alan founded the church mm -hmm. back in, in the 1800s. Um, the music was not what we think of in that church, what we think of as 
black music. That would be the Baptist church. The AME church was more, it was closer to um, being in a white church where they got to music. I mean, the music was pretty restrained. Um, yes. And, and a lot of Ramsey Lewis's music, in my opinion, as, as a, 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 a jazz enthusiast, not an expert, uh, but an enthusiast, is, 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 is classical. It's, it, it doesn't have that, uh, a lot okay. of it doesn't have that soul. Okay, Monroe, yes. Okay. Let me actually, actually add to that um, what yeah. you said. Um, not only did a lot of gospel come from the Baptist church, but also from the Pentecostal holiness churches. Yeah, well. right. Exactly. And they were indeed uh, very different than the AME church. Now, I also don't want to give away too much of what's in the book. Um, but um, Ramsey Lewis did comment quite a lot about the difference between the AME church and the Baptist and Pentecostal churches. Yeah. And so he did comment on those differences, but even within the AME church, Okay, what what would you, at the risk of giving too much of the book away, what what was his distinction? Um, How do I put this in a way that, um, you know, I don't want to use Ramsey's words, um, but um, uh, he he felt that there was different levels of, um, and I'm not going to use his words, I'm going to put that in different words, because you can read his words when they come out in the book, but... um, uh, different levels of, and I'm using my words, not his, yeah. um, emotionalism, different levels of call and response, different yeah. levels of yeah. how the sermons worked. Uh, yeah. And so there were certainly, even though Monroe, as you just said, what we think of as gospel music comes from the more Baptist Pentecostal traditions. Um, right. You know, Aretha Franklin, for instance, came out of the Baptist church, um, yeah. but was also very much exposed to the Pentecostal holiness churches. Here in Chicago, so much of gospel came from the Pentecostal church, um, you know, like my friend uh, Donald Gay. But even within the more, I don't want to use the word genteel AME church, but even within that, um, and as Ramsey Lewis would, would tell me, it wasn't as much of a fervor, I guess, let's just say, as the yeah. or Pentecostal. But even within the church as he experienced it, they certain members of the church brought that fervor to the AME that Ramsey Lewis was growing up in. Oh, you, you mean speaking in the tongue and that sort of Plus, thing? Well, yeah. yeah, there wasn't, yeah. well, that's, okay, we're going pretty far afield here, but yeah, the speaking in tongues, glossolalia, that was certainly something altogether, not altogether different, but that was certainly different than what Ramsey Lewis was experiencing growing up, yes. Yeah. Uh, just want to mention hey. Richard Allen, the founder of the AME. Yeah, Richard, Richard uh, Allen. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. I, yeah. I, I, I see him because his picture was all over the place at the church. Uh, let, let me just go a little bit aside. Um, did you see the movie Elvis? Did you get a no. chance to see that? That movie shows the impact the black church had on Elvis. He was, he, 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 he went to this Pentecostal tent revival as a kid because he's a poor white boy and he got uh, enthralled according to the movie. I don't know how real this is. And he started jumping around and like he had the Holy spirit or what have you, which led to his hip movements that were considered obscene for a long in in his career. 
You, you know, it's funny you mentioned that Monroe, because one of the last conversations I had with Ramsey was he and his wife, Janet had seen the Elvis film and they strongly recommended that, um, that I go see it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I regret that I never got to see it and talk about it with him after having seen it. And, yeah. um, another interesting point too, is, um, Ramsey Lewis and Elvis were roughly the same age. And, um, cause Elvis was born in 36 and Ramsey was born in 35. Um, yeah. so it's interesting to think, compare about those two musicians and their experiences and how they took them in, in different directions. Well, let's follow up on that. I hadn't thought about that at all. until so you mentioned it, uh, Aaron, that they're roughly the same age. Uh, and so what was it again, without giving away anything from your book, which I, I promise I will buy and I will probably buy a copy for Monroe as a present. So that's two. Okay. So, now you, you heard him, right? <laughs> two copies you sold. Okay. We, well, Monroe and I will go to your book signing, uh, together. I'll buy it and then I'll make him buy me lunch. Right, All right, right. Anyway. Uh, so. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, we're definitely going to buy a copy of this book. I've been waiting for it uh, since I saw it. But what was it about the Elvis movie uh, that made Ramsey Lewis recommend it to you? He loved the energy. He loved the emotion. He he loved the excitement, the visual aspect. Ramsey was also, by the way, a very devoted moviegoer. Um, he was always in COVID kind of put a, you know, hesitation on that. But even at home, he was always streaming things. Um, he, he loved the energy about it, but we didn't discuss it much because, um, you know, I wanted to go see it and we would discuss it later. I mean, obviously it wasn't like there would be plot spoilers. I, I know what happens in the story, but um, you know, um, you know, in terms of actually having an in-depth discussion about the movie, that was something where it was like, we would do that after I saw it. And yeah, I regret, you know, very sad that we never got that chance. Uh, and also on the, along the lines of things Ramsey told you uh, while you're writing a book. And again, realizing you don't want to give away too much, uh, the politics of Ramsey Lewis. This is a political talk show, uh, Monroe and I, political junkies. We talk politics every week. So what were the politics of Ramsey Lewis? Sure. Um, he was, well, he was very much against racism. And uh, there were certain uh, public figures who were trafficking in that, you know, and he was very much against them. Um, but one thing which... Um, you know, I, I can say um, here too is because um, it's in the public record. I mean, it's nothing secret in the book. But you know, in 2004, when uh, Barack Obama was running for Senate in the primary, and at that time he was not the front runner. I mean, this was early in the game, and and Ramsey Lewis was the first to step in and publicly uh, support. Barack Obama, he did concert fund fundraisers for him. And so this was really early in Barack Obama's senatorial campaign um, in the primary. So that was way before he was the favorite to win. Um, Aaron, where did, where, where did um, Ramsey live? But did he, was he a high park or did he live in the suburbs or something? No, he never lived in the suburbs. No, he lived in um, the Jackson park highlands for a while. Okay. And oh. His neighbor was uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I, yeah, I, I know the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, and, and Ramsey, um, you know, did some stuff with the Push Expo in the early seventies. Uh, Ramsey was involved with voter registration drives, and these were all documented in magazines like Ebony and Jet. So again, I'm not revealing anything that's a secret in the book. Um, but he was always informed, always engaged. Um, you know, he'd always 
have to, you know, schedule the interview time around so he could, you know, watch, watch the news and, um, you know, very much, um, you know, engaged with things as they were happening. And, um, I mean, he was never, um, leading, you know, uh, demonstrations, but doing the work that he did. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, again, there's other things too that are in the book, but that that's the basic stuff. That's all been, again, everything I said is all out there in the public. Uh, all right. So, uh, Aaron, help uh, Monroe and myself or tracing uh, sort of the uh, evolution of Ramsey Lewis. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so, yeah, Ramsey lived in Jackson, North Carolina. At the time I knew him, he was living in an apartment in Streeterville. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, he never, he never lived in, in the suburbs and he was always a Chicagoan through and through. By the way, not that there's anything wrong with living in Chicago. No. Did you hear what I said here? Not that there's anything wrong with living in A lot of good people I know went to Evanston High School. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, so, all right. Off there. Yeah, uh, Monroe, yeah, he's from uh, Gary. Uh, I, 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 I go to the suburbs at least once a year, whether I have to or not. Some people would say Gary is just a suburb of Chicago. Some people yeah, would say it, it, it is. It is that. Yeah, right. Uh, it's just you know, on the other side of the border. All right, uh, so let's talk about the evolution of uh, musically. Sure. And uh, Monroe and I were having, we got into a spirited conversation uh, reminiscing before we went on air uh, about our, our love for Ramsey Lewis and particularly the Sun Goddess uh, album. And, uh, and I, I, the Sun Goddess album, I urge everybody uh, when we're, you're done listening to this, go check it out if you haven't uh, already heard it. If you have, if it's an old album from your 70s days, you'll love listening to it again. Uh, and I think you'll like it even if you never heard it before. Uh, and Monrogo, he said to me, he said, uh, I always thought of that as an Earth, Wind, and Fire album. Uh, which I can understand why somebody would think that, uh, Aaron, because Earth, Wind, and Fire plays on that album, uh, but it's very much a Ramsey Lewis record. Uh, yeah. It was it was under his name. So talk about the musical evolution of a guy who comes up, as you said, a uh, mixture of gospel, classical, uh, traditional jazz. Uh, he's... Uh, I'm in the in crowd with with the audience doing the call and response, which was a made. I think we really made that record. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you're in the '70s, and it's kind of like I don't know funk that he's experimenting with. So, talk about the musical evolution of Ramsey Lewis. Sure, Ben, and also this goes back to uh, what Monroe and I were saying. But Ben, what you just hit upon with uh, in crowd and that call and response with the audience. Um, you know, that, that comes from, you know, from gospel that comes from the church, whether it's, you know, AME Baptist, Pentecostal holiness, um, you know, that call and response has direct connections to the church that, you know, Ramsey grew up out of. And, and so did many others now to get into this whole evolution. So, um, one of the things that was so, uh, amazing about Ramsey Lewis, um, throughout his career was just him always deciding, you know, even with the background he had, yeah, let's try something new. Let's do this. Let's try this. And of course, um, you know, as I mentioned in the Tribune, the the whole in crowd, that was just something that that the he and the other members of the trio decided, what the heck, let's just do it at the end of this gig. And it's a live gig and it was recorded and lo and behold, became a massive hit single, like number five on the pop chart. So I think 
one of the things that was great about Ramsey Lewis was his idea. Let's, let's just try this. And when he was at chess here in Chicago and was recording so extensively, it was, you know, uh, he could do a record that was his take on um, combining classical with blue, blues, Bach to the blues or a live album, like the in crowd album that became so massive or um, collaborating with, people like Charles Stepney who had these really advanced ideas of uh, experimental music and electronics. And they wind up doing this amazing take on um, the Beatles white album. And they did it two weeks after the white album was released, which was pretty incredible. So it was just this idea of trying things. And then another thing too, that was so important about Ramsey Lewis was the way he picked people to work with him and the way he nurtured them and the way he helped inspired them to do their thing. And Maurice white, uh, his drummer in the sixties was certainly one of them. And Maurice white goes on to form earth, wind and fire. Um, one of the things too, is that he also remained very, very close to a lot of these musicians, even after they went on to, uh, do very different things. And, you know, Maurice White, as we know, became such a superstar with Earth, Wind and Fire. And yet, even as he was a superstar, still very much looked up to Ramsey Lewis as a mentor, very much wanted to continue working with him in some capacity, although it wouldn't be Maurice White, you know, side man to Ramsey Lewis. It would be a real, you know, uh, and Sun Goddess was. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, and you could hear the jazz influence in Earth, Wind, and Fire. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Ram, Maurice White brought that, you know, from his experience with Ramsey and other, other players too. I mean, other Earth, Wind, and Fire musicians also had some jazz background as well. That, as well. That's what part of what made Earth, Wind, and Fire such a spectacular right. uh, group. Um, but then getting back to Sun Goddess, and, um, you know, this was. Maurice White is, uh, and also too, there were people who were here in Chicago, young musicians like the guitarist Byron Gregory, who played on Sun Goddess and then afterwards became a member of Ramsey Lewis's group. Uh, Durf Recklaw, a composer, percussionist, flautist who died a few months ago, who was also on that album, who also became part of Ramsey Lewis's group. Um, so it was really this collaborative effort. And it was, yes, it was a Ramsey Lewis album, but the fact that it was collaborative, the fact that it was people working together to uh, come up with it was what made it so special. And again, I keep talking about this, but that sort of feeling, that sort of communal feeling that the title track, for instance, has, um, the title track to Sun Goddess has is, um, comes from their Ramsey Lewis and Maurice White's shared experiences in gospel that the feel that it has, it's not a religious song, but it does have that spirited element as well. Uh, Another thing about sun goddess too, is um, there's a lot of fun stuff on that album as well. You listen to a track like uh, jungle strut and, um, and they're having fun. So, you know, it's all this stuff that I've been talking about with, you know, jazz and, classical music and gospel sounds very, you know, heady and it sounds very much like a very serious thing. But I think that's one of the things that made Ramsey and his music so special was it had that playful element as well. And the people who we worked with brought that playful element too. I mean, they were serious musicians and they were you know, very dedicated and trained in their craft, but they also had a lot of fun too. And that comes across on their records. And I think that is a very, very important thing to Ramsey's legacy is that sense of humor, that sense of playfulness that his musicians shared with him, uh, Durf Recklaw, Byron Gregory, and 
um, you know, all of them. Um, yeah. So talk a little bit about Ramsey's attitude toward the Beatles, but you get a kick out of this. Uh, I don't, I'm not this, obviously the scholar that Aaron is, uh, but, uh, I read somewhere that, uh, Ramsey Lewis didn't think much of the Beatles. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it was Charles Stepney came to him, the record producer, and said, you got to listen to this album. It was the White Album, the Beatles' White Album, which just was blowing everybody's mind when it came out. Uh, and so Ramsey Lewis listened to it, and then, like, uh, within two weeks, I guess, they did a, their own take of it. Which, by the way, Aaron, too many strings. I was listening to it last night. I wanted to tell you this. Uh, if, if I had one thing to say to Ramsey Lewis, he would, like laugh at me, you know, with <laughs> stick in your lane, Ben. Too many strings on that album. I know what you're talking about. Well, I disagree, Ben. I, okay. I think the, the string arrangements are amazing on that. And I, I credit Stephanie for that. I, I think it's, um, well, what's Ben? Let me ask. Now, are you talking about the Beatles? Or are you talking about? Okay, no, I went on a tangent. Ramsey Lewis did. Okay, so I got off. What I'm, string I'm, would I'm, you take away, Ben? If you were to take away. Pretty much everyone. Okay. Really? I, yeah. <laughs> I went through a phase like with seventies guys uh, were jazz musicians in the seventies. I mean, I've talked to to Aaron and Monroe about this. I felt they were trying to go mainstream and pick up and make some money. Uh, I'm thinking George Benson now, and uh, they bring in the strings and it's almost like they're thinking, Oh yeah, this is, this will sell a few more copies. And like, even in Breezen, which is, I absolutely love Breeze George Benson. It's got nothing to do with Ramsey Lewis. I every time that comes on the radio, Aaron, I turn it up. Oh, I love this. Song. It is, it's a great song. It's, it's a great, great song. song. But the strings, George, get rid of the string. Yeah, we, we don't we, need we, the string. Ben, ben, that's been going on since the fifties. I mean, Charlie Parker recorded a great record with strings, and people were saying the same thing about Charlie Parker. Oh, get rid of the strings, Charlie Parker. <laughs> you know, and it was wrong then. It was wrong then. And, and I, I was telling Aaron, I was telling Ben earlier today when we were talking about the Adderley brothers, Cannonball and that. Oh, Adderley. the Adderleys. I thought you said the Adler brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, Adderley. yeah, 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 but, yeah. Cannonball and that. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, what they would do is they would have uh, a popularized song on one side, and then the flip side would be serious jazz. And that was their formula with, that they oh, yeah. did throughout their career. Yeah, uh, and because, uh, but, you, because a musician got to eat. They, <laughs> oh, well, I mean, and they they were really good at it. Um, but yeah. to get back to Ramsey Lewis and, and the Beatles, um, it well, again, I don't want to give away too much from the book, but um, it wasn't that he didn't think much of them. It was just kind of like, um, you know, we, there was a difference. Let's just say between um, the singles that the Beatles were doing and the serious albums that they were doing later and let's just i just want to leave it at that okay all right well i just remember this anecdote uh that the late great richard mcgee once told me the great disc jockey from chicago and uh back in the early 60s richard mcgee was uh had a recording career that he was he was aspiring to be a singer and he rented time and space uh he got i don't know if he rented it but he got time at the chess uh, recording studio uh, michigan avenue and he says he was they were finishing up their song and he said i'm paraphrasing five of the ugliest skinniest white men he's ever seen walked in to the studio and it was the rolling stones uh, and they were on their tour of chicago <laughs> and i go richard that was the Rolling Stones. And he was like, F the Rolling Stones. We wanted to do our music. Who the hell were they? You know, they kick us out of this. Too. We didn't think anything. And then five of the ugliest, skinniest white guys I've ever seen. 
So it's, I mean, maybe there was some of that too. You get what I'm saying, Aaron? It maybe I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And, and by the way, the whole story of the, uh, Rolling Stones at chess has been um, mythologized in so many different ways too. That's a, another story altogether. Um, did they actually record there, or did they just visit it? Yeah, they recorded it, and um, yeah, the song they did an instrumental song, Twenty One Twenty South Michigan, about chess. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I don't believe that Ramsey had any interaction with the Rolling Stones. Uh, I don't believe. All right, so here's a trivia question uh, for Monroe and Aaron Cohen. Uh, and so Spotify, uh, keeps track of every single song by every single artist. So you can tell which one gets the most downloads. Uh, and so for 10 trivia points, we'll start with Aaron Cohen, who's the expert and is writing the book. What is the most listened to Ramsey Lewis song on Spotify, Aaron? Well, you know, I'm going to say the in crowd, but that sounds like such an obvious answer that I'm sure it's wrong. Um, <laughs> so um, if it's, if it's not the in crowd, it probably would be the title track to sun goddess. And Monroe, your, your guess. Sun goddess. Well, gentlemen, I hate to tell you, you're both wrong. It's <laughs> weighed in the water. Hang on Sloopy. Sure. Uh, weighed in the water is such a great mm-hmm. tune. No, well, that was another very popular tune, um, but uh, so I, I guess the most obvious, and I guess I was wrong. Yeah. Well, you can uh, tell I don't use Spotify, too. Yes, no, that's good. By the way, folks, if you could see this, and Monroe can see it, because he's got the, the, the video, uh, Aaron Cohen, the backdrop to Aaron Cohen are like hundreds of records, LPs, like old-style stuff, okay? It's like this guy still has vinyl, ladies and gentlemen. That's the backdrop. Uh, so, Aaron, are you trying to uh, tell us that you actually listen to that vinyl? And, I do, you know, I do, um, you know, because I like it when music goes through the air. I see you're wearing headphones, Ben. I'm yes. not. Um, yes. You know, I like it when sound has to travel and the air can filter the sound in very uh, wonderful ways. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that doesn't happen with CDs? CDs too. I got CDs as well, but um, yeah, it's, um, you know, it just happens to be that my camera is facing my, uh, you know, okay. CD, my LP rack. I got CDs over here. Oh yeah, so, there we are. Yeah. Is Sun Goddess, is Sun Goddess in that LP rack? Oh sure. No, it's not. It's in my other room where my stereo is. Cause I was listening to it. You know, yeah. day. I mean, a lot of my Ramsey Lewis records are in the room where I do my most of my listening because I've been listening to them nonstop for the last. Do, yeah. Do you, do you write to music or as I do, or are you like Ben and, and that's a distraction? The music is a distraction when you're writing. It's tough. It's really, really tough. Not only is music tough to listen to when I'm writing, cause I'm thinking about the music. Uh, sometimes if I'm reading, it's very hard too. Um, you know, especially if I'm reading something that is, very very sad yeah you know, I listen to happy music while reading something sad or listen to something you know beautiful while reading about something horrible so um sometimes it's hard for me to read and listen to music just like sometimes it's hard for me to write and listen to music and sometimes it's hard for me to just uh, do daily tasks while listening to music because i'll get so distracted by the music i'll enter the wrong number and wind up losing my entire checking account <laughs> Well, Monroe, Just I, I uh, there were guys I went to college with Monroe. Yeah, I, I, I can still see them. So they they did the the trifecta. So they would open a book to read, 
put music on in the background and smoke a joint. The trifecta. I'm like, how I, <laughs> How can you concentrate? If I smoke a joint, which I haven't since 1980, but I digress. If I smoke a joint, I can't read the same sentence. I can't read a sentence. I get lost in the sentence. So I have to start it. And go. So I don't know how anybody can listen, uh, smoke a joint, and, but plus put on record. Monroe, now, are you capable of uh, writing having smoked a joint? Not really. I have written having smoked a joint back when I was in college or, or a little bit later than that, perhaps. But anyway, it's, it's legal now. So I actually I haven't since it became legal. I haven't done it, which is really strange. But anyway, I've written. And um, the next day when I read what I wrote, it needed rewriting, shall we say. Yeah, it didn't sound but, so but, good. But it, but it was good to give me an alternative perspective. Yeah. You know, I, I, would, I would get these really crazy ideas and what have you. And then sober, I, I, I could do, th- do something with a few of them. But pretty much they needed to go to the trash can. Yeah. No, that, that sounds about right. Uh, so we're all close with this question. What is the status of the memoir? And uh, yeah, so explain uh, Ramsey Lewis autobiography. Right. Uh, what's the status? Well, it was, you know, Ramsey and his family's wish that it continue. And so it's going to continue. And um, it'll come out uh, next year. And uh, so do you have, are there still interviews that you have to transcribe or is it just a matter of writing the thing now? Yeah. All the interviews with Ramsey have been um, completed and transcribed. And over the last few months, I've been sending him chapters that have been finished and he's been commenting on them and that's the way it's been. And, um, but when we started the project, um, it was the, our idea that we would also include um, perspectives from other people who worked with him. And there's a few more people who I would like to speak with um, who are his colleagues or, or people he was close to. So um, no, no, there's a few of those I want to include, but um, yeah, pretty much most of the interviews have been, have been completed. Okay. What, what, what voice are you writing the book in? Is it, it's, it's Ramsey's voice. And one of the things that we'd been doing is going back and forth and, you know, he's been commenting on, you know, getting his voice right and things like that. It's, it's Ramsey's story or the voice of whoever else is coming into the narrative. Um, uh, whether it's Verdine White or as I mentioned earlier, uh, Durf Reklar or Byron Gregory, um, or his wife, Janet has her uh, side of the story as well. So, you know, it's the perspectives, it's the voices of the people speaking. And then I'm going to write an introduction, which is obviously my yeah. voice. Yeah. I really want to read the book because I'm, 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 I'm considering writing a book about a, a, an, a, an artist, a sculptor. And um, I'm trying to figure out if I do it, how, how I'm going to work that. Whether Is, it's going to be uh, third person or, or what I'm going to do with it. You know, that's not an easy decision to make. Well, I mean, with me, I mean, it was, and is the sculptor still still alive? Yeah. Okay, because Ramsey yeah. asked me to do the with him. So it really wasn't, you know, me coming, approaching him. You know, Ramsey approached me to do it. So, um, yeah. 
And that, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, with me, the sculpture, we've discussed it. Um, the, 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 the sculpture is Richard Hunt. Mm-hmm. And, and we've discussed that. it yeah. and, um, o- over the years. And his, his attitude has been, but I've got to do the work. <laughs> when am I going to have time to talk to you? I need to do the work. Yeah, well. So, you know, that's been, so if it, if, if it happens, it may happen now because he, he's in his eighties. Yeah. And, and uh, so we may be able to do it now. We'll see. Uh, and I just want to point out to everybody that, uh, Aaron, uh, also did a, a book about the great Curtis Mayfield. So two of the greatest, in my humble opinion, uh, musicians out of Chicago. And I think Curtis Mayfield's also from Cabrini Green. Yes. Uh, yes. so yeah. Cabrini Green. May you rest in peace. I, I do some great musicians. Right. When I was at Ebony, I, I, I did a piece on Curtis Mayfield for Ebony. Um, I traveled with him on a tour through the South, which was really interesting. It was right after Superfly. Oh, wow. Well, he was very high. And um, he should have been a cover story on, on Ebony, but... Um, John Johnson decided he was too ugly. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what a I know. decision. I know. So, exactly. <laughs> wow. I, so, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> that's horrible. Uh, that, it, was, it was Johnson Publishing. What can I tell you? Well, you know, he, you know what? Uh, as I began the show, we'll end the show. He signed the front of the checks. You signed the back of the exactly, checks. Right, so that exactly. determines who goes on the cover of the magazine. Right, exactly. Uh, and we began the conversation, uh, Aaron, before you joined us, talking about Robert Sarver, uh, who is the owner of the Phoenix Suns, uh, who has been caught saying all kinds of abusive and racist stuff uh, behind the scenes uh, and uh, dropping the N-word, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and the NBA uh, punished him by uh, fining him $10 million. And he's a billionaire, so I'll just think about that for a moment, Aaron Cohen. Uh, and then suspending him for a year, so he can't have anything to do with the team. So that's why I'm saying we began uh, the conversation with the bad behavior of, of billionaire bosses, and we ended it with a little bad behavior by, I guess he's not a billionaire. Uh, no, he's a, he's a million. He, he was a million. Yeah. Well, he was a millionaire when a million was significant. Oh, yeah. and, and he had more than one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's unbelievable, man. Uh, Curtis Mayfield kicked off the cover because he's quote too ugly. Oh, no, he wasn't kicked off. He never got on. He, wasn't <laughs> he got, 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 got your point. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh, all right. Well, thank you uh, very much, Monroe. Well, thank you for having me. And Aaron, oh, thank you very much. Speak with both uh, of you, Ben and Monroe. Great, great. And thank you, Dennis, for all of your work. Yes, very good, Dr. D. Yes, thank you very much, Monroe. Thank you very much, Aaron. And also, yes, as Aaron was saying, thank you very much, Dr. D, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Aaron, Monroe, and Curtis Mayfield will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Goodbye. By estimates, 50.